So welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast, episode number three. Today we're going to be chatting about standards and regulations. But no, we're not going to bore you to death with this stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about NFPA, WorkSafe BC, static system safety factors. We'll talk about some force limiting, some speed versus safety, some confined space tactics, some bash kits, and austere rigging anchors. Oh, did you miss me? Welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast. We're pleased to have you. Ronin's comprised of a bunch of slightly deranged individuals that wander the globe in search of that elusive rescue unicorn. We compete, we train, we do rescue work. We're looking for that end-all, be-all system. You know, the one, the one that's going to do everything for you. We haven't found it yet, but we found a bunch of interesting things along the way. and We just wanted to share that with all of you out there. So to start with... We're going to talk about NFPA, some WorkSafe BC, so some regulations and standards here. Now, the big issue that we get is we keep getting these folks that go, oh, we can't rig that. It doesn't meet our 10 to 1 static system safety factor. Heck, we still have people at Ronan that have said 15 to 1 static system safety factor. We've got people that say you can't rig that. It doesn't meet NFPA. Well, let's take a look at some of this stuff. Now, you look at NFPA, take 1670. Right in the beginning of the 1670 standard, it talks about equivalency. It says, nothing in this standard shall be intended to prevent the use of systems, methods, or devices of equivalent or superior quality, strength, resistance, effectiveness, durability, and safety in place of those prescribed by this standards, provided technical documentation is submitted to the HJ, authority having jurisdiction, to demonstrate equivalency and the system, method, or device is approved for the intended purpose. So how can it meet NFPA? NFPA is a standard. It is not a law unless it's incorporated into a regulatory body. But right here, it basically states that the authority having jurisdiction has the ability to use other equipment if it deems it necessary. Some other parts here. The AHJ shall ensure the equipment that is being used respective to the operational capabilities for the operations at a technical search and rescue incident and training, that there's exercises provided in that, that there's training provided in that. So I'm paraphrasing that one a little bit, but basically it says, yeah, you gotta be trained in the equipment you're gonna be using. It also states 4412, it's gotta be used with the manufacturer's instructions it also states that it needs to be inventoried and accounted for. It doesn't say anywhere in there that you have to use NFPA gear. Nowhere in the NFPA standard does it actually state you need to use NFPA gear to meet any of those particular standards. Let's look at a standard in a little bit more depth here. Let's take a look. We're going to pull out uh, a 1006.5.2.4. Standard says, demonstrate knots, bends, and hitches, given ropes, webbing, and a list of knots used by the agency so the knots are dressed, recognizable, and backed up as required. It goes on to talk about the requisite knowledge for this. Knot efficiency, knot utilization, knot construction, and rope terminology. It breaks it down into its requisite skills. The ability to tie representative knots, bends, or hitches for the following purpose end-of-line loop, mid-line loop, securing rope around desired objects. You get the idea, I won't drone on. 
It doesn't say you have to tie a figure eight on a bite. It doesn't say you need to tie a clove hitch. It simply states you need to tie a knot that will secure a rope around a desired object. That is the standard. So when we get these people that say to us, well, that's not rigged to the NFPA standard, please explain to me how it isn't. As long as we have a knot that is securing a rope around a desired object, we've met the standard. Now, you look at some other ones. Construct a single, single point anchor system given life safety rope and it goes into the requirements. All of these particular ones, and I bring up this one about construct a single point anchor system because there's an interesting point in here and this sentence comes up a lot in NFPA. So that the chosen anchor system meets the incident needs, meets or exceeds the expected load and does not interfere with the rescue operations. Nowhere in here in an NFPA standard does it indicate what the static system safety factor is. That is up to the authority having jurisdiction. You know, it goes on a little further to state the anchor system is inspected and loaded prior to being placed into service and the integrity of this system is maintained throughout the operation. Basically it's stating build something that's going to hold your load to your AHJ's, you know, static system safety factor, if that's what you want to call it, but their margin of safety that's going to complete and be integral throughout the entire orientation. Capture a fall, manage a load, whatever that case may be. We move further down. Let's take a look and tear apart a little bit of 1983. Nowhere in 1983 does it indicate that you need to use a static system safety factor. Nowhere in there does it state you need to use NFPA equipment. It says such things as the JPRs for each level or position, correction, this is 1006, not 1983, JPRs for each level or position shall be completed in accordance with recognized practices or procedures as deemed by law or by the AHJ. Now we'll cut into 1003. 1003.115, this standard shall not specify requirements for any rope or associated equipment designed for mountain rescue, cave rescue, lead climbing operations, or expected hazards or situations dictate other performance requirements. It also shall not specify for fall protection pertaining to employees of general industry, not apply to rope or equipment where people are working above anchor points. So, it goes on for a little bit more here in 1983, but it's also telling us here that this standard is just a manufacturer's standard for that equipment. It is not a user standard or an end user standard that we need to ha you know, use NFPA gear or that it's some system safety factor in there that we're looking at. So to summarize the NFPA, our standards, whew, static system safety factors are up in accordance to the AHJ or by law. Now, if we're working in BC, we run into another issue. WorkSafe BC mandates. Now, there's a few standards that deal with rescue. 3117, we're talking the firefighter standard part 31, ropes, Rescue ropes, rappelling lines, and safety belts, harnesses, including safety hooks, rope grabs, lowering devices, blah, blah. Related equipment must meet the requirements of NFPA 1983, 1990 edition. 
I believe they've updated it to say current edition in the guidelines. But now let's take a look at this. Now this is impossible to meet. If you go back and look at NFPA 1983, it has such things in there. It talks about if we're moving above our anchor, lead climbing, climbing up into a tower, NFPA equipment doesn't, isn't rated for that. If we're, you know, other expected hazards or situations dictate other performance requirements, well, that's pretty much wide open. Let's even break it down more simply. When's the last time you looked and saw that your webbing met, met NFPA? A lot of your anchor slings that we're using out there don't meet NFPA. They're not stamped with an NFPA standard on them, yet we're in violation of WorkSafe BC. I would look back and say NFPA refers heavily to the authority having jurisdiction, and should the authority having jurisdiction indicate that an ASAP is the piece of equipment to use, but it doesn't meet the NFPA standard, then an ASAP should be the piece of equipment that gets used. Now, if we're not wearing a blue uniform in British Columbia, then we fall under Part 32. Now, 32.4 is an interesting standard here, or interesting reg, beg my pardon. It says ropes and associated rigging equipment. It talks about what they must be, but it does state when new, have a minimum safety factor of 10 to 1 based upon a one-person load of 140 kilograms. Huh. It also indicates that it should be replaced at intervals stated by the manufacturer not exceeding five years. Let's break this up a little bit more here. Look at the five years first. So WorkSafe now has come back and said that's five years from the date in service, but is not to exceed the manufacturer's recommendation. So if the manufacturer says the sling's good for seven years, you put it into service three years after it's been manufactured, you're gonna get four years out of that sling. You have to maintain records though on when it went into service. The one I'm really curious about though is the 10 to one safety factor that WorkSafe's come up with here. It's interesting that they've taken this. I mean, I could take a guess as to who might have been sitting on this committee when this standard was, or this regulation was created, but let's take a look at it and go PEPSAR. That's the Provincial Emergency Program of BC, Search and Rescue. They work to a two kilonewton load, two person, one kilonewton per person. Most mountain rescue teams do, yet Part 32 indicates that they got to work to 1.4, but yet nobody seems to care about that. It's readily accepted that SAR works to a two kilonewton load, where this would be a 2.8 kilonewton load. If we take a change of direction, let's just hypothetically say we've got 180 degree change of direction in our system. We're gonna double the force on the anchor. Well now, two person load on there, 2.8 kN, we're looking at a 5.6 kilonewton force theoretically on that anchor. We're not gonna get into the you know whole uh, friction and everything else here. Let's just go with a 5.6. So a 10 to one safety factor, we're looking at 56 kilonewton system. So that means our sling has to meet 56 kN, our pulley, our carabiner, and the anchor itself, which WorkSafe readily admits is 5,000 pounds or 22 kN under part 11 and if we're using fall protection anchors. I'd be hard pressed to go out there and find a pulley that meets 56 kN. Sure, we can go buy some blocks from DMM, you know, that the uh, arborists use, but we're getting into stuff now that's some pretty heavy duty equipment that no one's actually using. So we're pretty much violating this on a daily basis. I think that some realism probably needs to be brought in here, and this standard needs to, or this reg needs to be changed to indicate, 
you know, if they want to put a safety factor in, great, but let's start looking at least the loads we're rigging to as opposed to hypothetical loads that are listed in regulation. One interesting point out of this is WorkSafe BC has come up and said now in their guidelines that this 28 kilonewtons, 2.8 kN, 10 to 1 safety factor, this 28 kilonewtons is when new. When new as in like on the roll. So my uh, Sterling Tech 9, a 28 kilonewton rope on the roll. Doesn't matter if I put a knot into it because when new on the roll, that's how I read when new, it meets 28 kN, I'm good to use that and meet this standard. So that's an interesting point for uh, you know, work safe BC there. One of the other ones to take a look at here is part 34. Now that's rope access in British Columbia. There's only three provinces that accept rope access in their work safe regulations currently. That's BC, Alberta, and Nova Scotia. You can get into some provinces. Saskatchewan will accept it, Manitoba will accept it with an engineer signing off on it. Ontario will almost flog you to death with the MOL inspectors, but if you have an engineer sign off it, no one can seem to trump a PNG and you'll get away with it. Although you can look downtown Toronto and see a lot of three-line systems in use. Guys using classic rope access systems, then running a 5.8 CSA lifeline behind them with a trailing rope grab. You know, some standardization across the country would be awesome, probably not going to occur in my lifetime. The thing with Part 34 for WorkSafe BC is we've had to meet with WorkSafe and now get a good definition of what is bosun's chair and what is rope access. And what they're basically breaking the difference down to is if the carabiner is attached to your ring on your harness, so the controlled descent device is attached to you, or the ascender is attached to you, or the knot on the lowering system is attached to you, then you're in rope access or you're under part 32 if you're doing rescue or doing training for rescue. If that controlled descent device is attached to the ring on the Bolson's chair, so that you have the ability to fall out of that chair and hit your dorsal D and your shock absorbing lanyard and you know, land on your 5.8 lifeline, then you are in bosun's chair. You are not in rope access. So if your controlled descent device is on the chair or the knot is attached to that ring on the chair, it's bosun's chair work. We specifically asked the question, can we use, we call it a prussic bypass. Can I take a prussic and clip into that chair to make it safer for myself so I don't fall out? Absolutely, that is not a problem, according to the folks that we met there, which seems to defeat the purpose of that line between rope access and bosun's chair. However, nobody that's doing bosun's chair, the majority of them, are going to run out and do a rope access course. Whether it's safer, whether it isn't, isn't the argument I want to have at this particular time. The simple fact is, the guy that's out there inspecting the dam face or chiseling some concrete is not going to take a five-day course and the company is not going to employ a level three on site to watch him work so they can fall under part 34 or do rope access work. There is going to be a place for bosun's chair in the distant future as far as I can tell because the training is less onerous, the equipment is less expensive, and the supervisory of it is less costly and that's what's going to run the bottom dollar here in industry. Is there ways to make it safer? Absolutely. Why we prefer the press it bypass 
And Boson's chair needs to be trained to the CSA standard. You need to make sure you're taking into account all the things that the CSA standard on controlled descent in Boson's chair deals with so that you are creating a safe system. I briefly mentioned force limiting. Now, there's some interesting work coming out of uh, Kirk Mothner, Base Camp Innovations, who received a grant from the provincial and federal governments in order to upgrade the BC SAR program, search and rescue program. And they did a ton of testing. And there's a whole podcast that needs to be dedicated to what went on there, and maybe I'll try to get Kirk on here at some point in time. But needless to say, there's a move towards force limiting. If you've ever played with the CTOMS trace system, you'll know the Quickie S sender and the Quickie D sender are force limiting devices. They're designed to start bleeding energy after about a 3KN hit. And what has come up now is the loads of about one to four kilonewton is what they're looking at. Your force limiting device, so read your ID, your MPD, that would be probably both ends of the scale there, runs somewhere between five to 12 kilonewtons, your ID being closer to five, your MPD being closer to 12 kilonewtons. So that's your force limiting device. That's when those devices start bleeding out in order to limit the shock to the device. And what they're saying is the maximum braking strength, your equipment, 20 kN then maybe, because if we can predict what the force is going to be, then we can start working underneath engineering principles, which limit the safety factors to a much smaller margin than the 10 to 1, 15 to 1, 25 to 1. I mean, even in the rigging industry, when you look at uh, 5 to 1, we're even going below that because we can start to predict some of the loads. Now, obviously, there's some caveats in this. This is when we're talking about a twin tension rope system. And that's where the majority of the testing has been done on. And so we get some more um, or less dynamic forces into the system. And there's a few other caveats that go with that. And like I said, we'll bring another podcast up to that exclusively. But I think it's just worth a note right now as we talk about, you know, WorkSafe PC mandating the static system safety factor that NFPA doesn't even mandate in any of its rescue or equipment standards. And yet now we have two specific areas, both with the Trace and with BC PEPSAR, where we're going to start moving more towards a force limiting system. So, with that, we can move into speed versus safety. Now, this is a big, interesting point for me. Um, it, it really is. We've worked in Europe a lot. Ronan's attended a lot of Grimp days. And where we get hammered, where we get slaughtered as a North American team is on speed. And now, they're definitely sacrificing some level of safety for speed. But where is, how safe is too safe? Now you look at teams like uh, Paris Fire, the Brigade de Sapiens Pompiers de Paris, or Tokyo Fire. Now they sacrifice a large degree of safety for speed. Paris, I mean, when I first saw them working, and I know they still do to some degree, it's all SRT, single rope technique. They don't have an issue with it at all. They have a lot of buildings where getting people down the stairs is a tough task just due to the you know, the way they were built. So they do a lot of single rope technique out the window, basically sloping high lines down to ambulances to make it really simple. And so we look and go, if these guys are doing this all the time every day, are we being a little too risk adverse in North America? Is there, is there something we're missing here? 
So we got to take a look and go, the fire service we're taught will risk very little for little gain. We'll risk more for greater gain. But in rope rescue, has this caused us to become risk adverse? Because what are we looking at? Are we now stating that if there's multiple people hanging from a building, maybe we should risk more, maybe we should go on single rope technique? Like that's where that thought process might lead you. And I'm not saying run out there and start running single rope technique, but it's interesting that in a structure fire, if we've got people trapped inside, we'll put it on the line a little bit more than if the home's not occupied. I'm not saying we're not gonna work hard and do our job, but we're definitely gonna put it on the line more if there's people down. If there's firefighters down, we'll put a lot on the line. We'll uh, you know, do things that might be outside of the operational guidelines at that point. Yet, when we do rope rescue, there's only one way we do it. That whole we'll risk more to save more or get more is kind of thrown out the window in rope rescue. And I guess the question is, should it be or shouldn't it be? I mean, that's, that's the chew point that I want to put out there right now. And now you look at the fire service and you go, hit it hard from the yard is a statement that's been brought up recently that wasn't even in play 20 years ago. So has the fire service become too risk adverse? Now, the fire service is not the military. The fire service is, same with your search and rescue. I mean, they're dedicated, brave, reliable, but most part, they're public employees. Even the SAR, where you've got volunteers, they're covered by the local workers' compensation board. If they get killed, there's going to be inquiries. There's going to be investigations. There's going to be payouts. And I'm not saying with the military the same things don't occur, but they don't occur to the same level or the same cost that they do to a public servant of a city or of a regional district. So others may live. I mean, that's the motto of doing rescue. But does this take a back seat now to OHS regulations and standards? I mean, did you think we started with regulations and standards just for fun? Well, no, we, we looked at a few different ones there, and we bring that up because those are the rules we have to follow, those regulations. I mean, they've quoted NFPA 1983, which now makes that an enforceable standard under law, regulatory law in BC. But yet, am I handcuffing myself? Am I doing something now that's going to affect the way I can perform a rescue? So there you go. I mean, there's never the dull question on this. But let's take a look at some of these rescue teams that we run into over in Europe a little bit more closely and go, why do they take this risk? Well, the BSPP, which is Paris Fire, they're serving members of the military. And not only are they serving members of the military, they've got to go through a selection to get into their grimp teams and their, their rope teams, their rescue teams. It's not like where you see a lot of North Americans where maybe you get an extra couple bucks on your paycheck, maybe seniority allows you to pick the hall that the rescue team is in. You may not be there for the same reasons. Where in Paris, it's military, so their risk tolerance, we can all agree, is probably a little bit wider than the fire service. And it is a selection to get into that program. Hong Kong, I mentioned them at the beginning. They are not a military team. However, they do have a selection to get onto the Hong Kong Fire Brigade, for instance, technical rope rescue team. So we've got these two kind of ends of the spectrum. I've worked fire for a, a few many years, and there's people that are on that team simply because they want to be in that hall. So they pick it. They have no interest in doing rope rescue. They have no interest in training in it at all. 
Yet on the other side of the spectrum over there, you have people that are going through selection training in order to make it onto a specialized team. So they're training, and this is gonna hurt teams in North America, but over there looking at the teams that compete at GRIMP, I mean, those are fire service teams. We put together a hand-picked team from multiple fire services, and we're competing against like Berlin Fire. We're competing against their everyday rescue team that goes out on the street. And that team is much better trained than any North American rescue team that I've seen. I've seen a bunch, and I mean, I'm not trying to slight anybody, I'm not trying to piss anybody off here. And you know, if you think your team's that, give me a call, I'm happy to go down and take a look, or go to Grimp Day. I mean, there's, there's the proofs in the pudding. Go play at that event for a couple of days and run 10 scenarios and see how you do. So the other thing here is about risk aversion is it's really subjective. You know, I run into a burning building, to save someone and I die. My wife will go, it's too risky. Well, maybe she won't, it's hard to say these days. You know, fire department's likely to fence it on that. The citizen that I'm trying to rescue, maybe I do rescue them, but I die in the process, but they get saved, will say, no, that's, that's what we're paying that person the money to do. So that's really odd because now when we start looking at things like policy and procedure, operational guidelines, litigation, OH&S regulations that the fire service has to live under, and don't get me wrong, these SAR teams are gonna get it too, and they are getting it, where people are looking at them and doing coroner's inquests. You look at uh, the incidents they've had in Ontario with the water rescue, you look at the investigations into the death of the volunteer firefighter in the water rescue program um, out in, uh, Southeast BC. So these things are definitely now getting looked at. So it's highly unlikely that the philosophy and the policy will jive in these extreme scenarios. That philosophy of, you know, save a savable life so others may live. You know, we'll risk a lot to save a lot versus, okay, now we've killed somebody, you violated OHS policy. So when we look at stuff like technical rescue, like I said, Paris, Tokyo, they're still using things like SRT. That's pretty much verboten in North America. I mean, some of the rope teams though, like on the mountain rescue, they're still using SRT. So why is it okay for them to do it and not us? Is it because they're higher trained than us? Are they expecting or accepting a higher level of risk than we are? And let's think about this too. Helicopter rescue, long lining, winching. All right, winching, you're on cable, I'll give you that. Long lining, though, you're on rope when you're looking at your Class D external cargo there. So if I'm hanging off a bridge downtown, picking off somebody that's you know, decided they don't want to jump now, or I'm hanging underneath a helicopter, what's the difference? Well, the difference is under a helicopter, I'm under one line, and the pilot has the ability to guillotine that line should the helicopter become compromised. So now we're saying that when I'm downtown on a bridge, my life's worth more than when I'm underneath a helicopter? The helicopter and that crew's life's worth more than mine and my patients? What are we saying there? And I mean, there's some practical realities about hanging underneath a helicopter, but why you're not putting that many lines underneath there? But yet, let's go back to our original conversation and look at the French or the Paris firefighters that are doing SRT, slope and high line, put patients out a window. One track, one control. Slide them down, put them in the back of the ambulance. So what's the difference between doing that and pulling them off the side of a hill 
on the bottom of a helicopter. And what's the difference between doing those two things and me hanging off the side of a bridge downtown Vancouver, picking off somebody that doesn't want to be there? Why are the lines different? Should they be? That's the question I pose to you. So at the end of the day, that's what we're looking at. You know, you look at these investigations, there's never one smoking gun to the accident. Training human error really comes in. There's, there's been very little documented cases of equipment breaking. We're backing up gear because of human error most of the time. I've investigated a handful of accidents that have occurred on rope rescue systems, and not one of them has been for an equipment failure. They've all been for human error. And maybe that there is enough of a, of a reason to be rigging that second line so that you don't end up doing the ground strike and taking that dirt nap. So I just wanted to bring that up as a conversation point. I'm not saying head on out there and start jumping off of, uh, off of bridges on single rope techniques. I am gonna take one segue here though and talk a little bit about anchoring when we talk about single rope or you know rigging. So when I started Rope Rescue, a bomb-proof anchor was bomb-proof. We could rig both lines to that. We'd have two separate anchors. We'd have two separate carabiners. You know, it was two independent systems, except for it was rigged to the same anchor point. And that seems to have gone by the wayside in a lot of North American rescue teams. In Europe, that's still common practice. If it's bomb-proof, then rig everything to it. No big deal at all. But that does start moving down that road of, is it truly a redundant system? The system's redundant. Is the anchor, though? When is bomb-proof not bomb-proof? When is bomb-proof bomb-proof? Just some more food for thought out there. So I think that's about it on the whole speed versus safety. And, you know, I think we've pushed around the static system safety factors a little bit. So I think from this, I'm going to talk one more thing here about the whole regulations, the policies, the procedures, and that is, are we too procedural based? In North America, have we become to the point where procedures are running everything? I mean, I put up a meme the other day on one of the sites that said, you know, you can't do procedural based in a performance reality world sort of thing here where we have a procedure for everything. There's the joke going around. Uh, you're doing it wrong, my clipboard says so. Yet, rigging and rescue is complex problem solving. That's all it is. You're learning a group of skills, and the more skills, the better. If you can get rope access, you have Sprat or Irata in there for personal skills, and you can take some NFPA kind of fire courses, as they, you know, they're termed, although now we can look at this and go, you can pretty much make any course NFPA Total other segue, if I climb a rope, rope access style under the Sprat Code of Practice, am I meeting the NFPA standard? At yeah, I am. But at any rate, so we look at those. Maybe take some mountain rescue courses. Go see what the cavers are doing. Let's go see how we're pulling people out of crevasses. Let's go play with some different countries. Let's go play with the military and do some, you know, BMO ammo, advanced mountain operations type stuff with more austere environments and less equipment. Because all of that puts into that toolbox, I hate that analogy, but it's probably pretty good. You know, it's all those tools in your toolbox so that when you get that complex problem, you got that person hanging over the edge and they've climbed there and 
you know, now we've got to deviate lines and weird anchor systems. That's what all that is for. It's to create that rescue system. All that knowledge is brought together. And I know I go on about Grimp Day, but that's what's so beautiful about it, is you get these problems that have to be solved with rope rescue rigging. But in North America, we seem to have gone to this procedural-based thing where they want everything written down on paper. How do we take a problem that we don't know exists yet and create a solution to it on paper? You don't. It's, it's an impossibility. And I do honestly think, this is one thing, I'm not throwing it out there saying, you know, what do you think? I mean, I'm throwing down now that says, we'll become too procedural-based. Hell, I'll say we've become too risk-averse as well, but uh, I'm willing to argue that one a little bit. So at the end of the day, I'll leave that alone and we'll move on to the next topic. Confined space tactics. Everybody's thinking here now, what the hell is he talking about? He's just jumped to confined space tactics. This is all linked in, by the way. So now we talk about this thing that I just went on about procedural-based. And most of our rescue systems are based on the patient. And why shouldn't it be? I mean, that's what we're doing this for. We're going out to help somebody. And in the rope rescue world, the patient can pretty much dictate. And we'd like to say the ideal packaging, the horizontal basket stretcher, nicely packaged, maybe some vacuum splinting, you know, in that horizontal, slightly head-up configuration, and away we go. Best patient comfort, best patient care. Now we drop down into a hole. And at Ronan, we do a lot of confined space work. Now there's a couple realities that come out of this. Number one is the atmosphere. So when we talk about our confined space tactics, our atmosphere drives everything. You know, it's stated out there, human can live, what, four minutes without oxygen to the brain. Then they start getting into irreversible damage. So we've got four minutes to get them out. How long does it take us to package them horizontally with our vacuum splint in that nice head-up configuration and gently raise them out of the space? Probably longer than four minutes. So these are going to be things because even if we are standing by at the edge, see it occur, react, throw a mask on, get in, we're probably already a minute down. This is going to be a grab and go. If they don't have a harness, you're going to be using a, one of the pocket harnesses from like a C-Toms or a PMI triangle or a Petzl triangle style harness. You're going to grab them and you're going to rip them out of there. If they've got spinal, oh well. If they've got a broken leg, tough luck. You're grabbing and you're ripping them out of that space because that's what the tactics dictate. So after atmosphere, the next big hiccup in confined space is the geography. So you look at this and you go, well, what do you mean, patient care? Well, the patient care will do the best we can, but much like the atmosphere, the geography is going to state what we can do and what we can't. Now you look at this and you go, you fall into a hole that's you know, four meters by four meters. Great, I can put you into that ideal rigging, patient packaging scenario. You fall into a space we're working on one out here in Hamilton this week. 22 inch diameter, 25 feet long. You find me a packaging device that'll fit a 22 inch diameter space. You're coming out on wristlets. That's what you're coming out on. So if you've fallen and you've got a spinal injury, you're coming out on wristlets. 
because there's nothing else we're going to do for you until we can get you out of that space. And we can put you on a backboard and do all those other nice things that have to come along with that. But the patient care is going to be affected. The confined space tactic that we use, the packaging that we decide upon is going to be directly affected by the geography of the space. Then, number three, we get into the patient concerns, the patient uh, medical conditions that we need to take into account in order to make them as comfortable and to try to you know, expedite recovery. But it's definitely coming under after atmosphere and geography when it comes to confined space tactics. Now, when we talk about tactics, this is, you know, we talk a little bit about, now we violated these procedures or these operational guidelines because they tell us how to deal with patients and we just threw them out the window. Well, we're also gonna talk a little bit deeper into tactics here when we talk about recce teams and bash teams. Now, recce teams, that's Canadian military lingo, recon teams in the States, it's basically a reconnaissance team. And a bash team, bash kits comes a little bit from the caving world, depending on where you're caving in the world, and we've stolen it from them. The boys from AERT down in the States kind of coined it for confined space, and we liked it, so we took it. Thanks, Shane, thanks, Arnold. Any rate, recce teams. So a lot of times you come up to your confined space, you don't know where your patient is. It's not like you're driving there and you see the guy standing on the side of the bridge or up the tower. And these spaces, you gotta remember, you start thinking, how many cities are around water? There's a lot of them. How many pieces of that water have some sort of industrial traffic on it? Like boats or ferries or any other type of large ship that moves on those. You know the confined spaces they have in those? We've played in a battleship, confined space rescue. It took us just under two hours to take a guy out of there. I mean, it was a convoluted, large scenario. It was a, you know, a, a scenario. It wasn't a real rescue. And so we threw as much, you know, snafus into this thing as we possibly could. But you can imagine, like, a two-hour rescue. These are basically industrial caves. And so we send out our recce team. Our recce team should be on air if they're going outside of the range of a gas monitor. They should have a gas monitor with them so they can clear spaces as they move through them. They should have a radio. It's gonna to need to be intrinsically safe. If you can't, you're gonna to have to put them on hardline comms. They should have a first aid kit, much like our QRP that we spoke about in one of our previous episodes, something to do critical interventions. And they should have a bash kit. And we'll talk a little bit about bash kits here in a second. We've talked about them again previously in one of our previous podcasts. And what these usually two individuals will do is they will start heading into that hole. And they'll start radioing back to command, hey, I'm moving across, we're moving across a pit, we're gonna have to cross all over. Hey, we're heading down a vertical shaft, going down approximately 10 feet, we're gonna need to do a raise on here. And command can sit there then and draw that picture as to where they're going and what they're going to need to get that patient out. Now, as you get down and they finally reach the patient, they have described a multitude of geographical rigging challenges, cross halls, raises, horizontal slides, these types of things, all the way down to them. Now, the incident commander can start to go, okay, how is the air? Because they had a monitor on it, they can check it the whole way through. Hopefully it's clear, it makes the rigging a lot easier, otherwise you're sending more people in on air, but now you're sending in your bash teams or your geographically remote rigging teams. 
They're taking these kits, and we'll talk about them again in a sec, and they're going into these spaces in order to rig these, each geographic section. And in the ideal world, you'd have enough manpower or the manpower would leapfrog themselves so the patient would have a smooth transition right through the entire inside of this industrial cave, inside of this structure, until they get out. You would leave a patient advocate with them to make sure that you're not hooking them up on quarters, make sure the first aid needs are taken care of, and to advocate for them as you move through. But those rigging teams would basically just pass the patient from rigging to rigging to rigging to move them through that system. Now, bash kits. We've talked about them before, and we'll just mention them briefly here. Small diameter rope. We use 9 mil, 9.2 mil in our bash kits. We use a couple of Grigri pluses uh, that we're moving to. We've got some Grigri twos right now. You know, we've got, uh, we use munters. What we're looking at here is single person loads and we're looking at usually shorter diameter hauls. And that way we can get some rope in on small kits on these bash, kit or bash team's backs and get them in the space and get them rigging. We can get them to get those folks out of there and make it safe as they're doing it. You know, this is the other thing. A lot of it doesn't need to be two-line systems. If we're hauling horizontally, if we're not hauling over 10 foot in height, we can get away with SRT. Hey, back to that whole risk versus benefit, speed versus safety thing I talked about at the beginning of this podcast. But yeah, these are decisions you're gonna have to make as you go in there. I will make the note, small diameter rope, less surface area, easier to cut, you know, that's what's, you know, mentioned out there. We've done a lot of work with small diameter rope. We kind of go by the saying that rope does not touch edges. We'll put hard pro down for hard edges. We will use soft pro to pad out, you know, slings or static lines, but we will not allow rope to run hard edges, whether it's 16 millimeter or three millimeter. It's just something we won't allow to happen. And so we try to protect our rope and touch wood. We've had no incidences thus far with it. Last thing I want to talk about here, and this kind of goes hand in hand with your bash kits, your austere rigging anchors. We have a little kit and it's got things like pitons in it, fifi hooks, BD peckers, things like this. And what they're designed, we use them for, is you get into a lot of these little spots. These are aid gear, big wall aid gear is basically what it is. And we use it as passive protection on bash kits. So when you're coming around some of these corners, some of these holes, there's not a lot to rig to. This one space that we're in, for instance, they're in there welding a crack. Well, I can take a piton and put it in a crack. I'm not gonna do much for the guy's weld, but if I gotta get him out, I gotta get him out. I could put a pecker into that crack. I could use those types of things over the edges. Uh, the CMC hook for the firefighter bailout kits fits beautifully over the edge of manholes on most of the barges we've been on. And that hook runs 13, uh, sorry, 15 KN. So there you're actually getting some strength. Yes, you look, we've checked with Petzl, we've checked with Black Diamond. Petzl rates some of their stuff for two kilonewtons. Black Diamond mentions body weight only. We don't want to start doing dynamic loads on these things, but when we're rigging in some of these really weird environments where there's nothing else to rig to, we've got some choices. We can rig to buddy, like your buddy, or we can start using some of this equipment and making even multi-point anchors with it. You know, I'll take Petzl's 2KN. We're gonna do some pull testing on these in the 
near future, see what they actually break at. We take a couple of those, make a four or six KN anchor on there. You know, I'm gonna be calling that good for, you know, 10 foot rays on a patient coming out of the space. So those are just things to think about, other tools that are out there that you can utilize for different things and kind of round out your strategies and tactics. Once again though, we're talking about passive protection designed for big wall aiding, being used in confined space rescue on difficult geographical challenges. This goes back to our regs and standards talks. This goes back to our speed versus safety. It goes back to the whole thing force limiting equipment so you know what that anchor is going to get hit with. Those are all things to wrap your brain around this week. Once again, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you guys uh, with your support.